What's up? All right. I feel better this week. I am moving and grooving. The baby's back in daycare. And I was so fired up after last week's episode with Lauren. Absolutely love her. Love how candid she is. Now this week, it's actually was the same conversation, but we don't focus as much on medically fragile or disabled children. This week, she actually talks more about our toxic anti-reunification culture. And she goes into some of the unique challenges uh, transracial families face, as well as how you ensure representation, right? Because we keep hearing representation matters, but there are plenty of uh, white foster parents or foster parents of a different race than the child that they are fostering. And they're going, you know, this is kind of uncomfortable. How do we exactly ensure representation? How do we go about that? So Lauren actually has some answers for us. So we are going to go right into this week's episode. Here we go. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group. Together we can end the foster care crisis. So what were some of your biggest challenges as a foster parent? Okay, so as a foster parent specifically, oh gosh. Um, Ooh, I'm like digging back because we haven't had an active case in a little while. I think my biggest challenge, which was a personal challenge, was overcoming the toxic anti-reunification culture that we have. Um, and I'm and people hate when I say that. I get so much flack for that. People are like, we do not, that is not a thing. Like, you don't understand. Like, my kid's situation was different. Like, reunification is not always safe. And I'm like, I didn't say that. Reunification is, of course, not going to be safe on every case. Like, that's sadly not every family heals. And I wish that wasn't true, but it is true. Like, some families can't heal and the child does need an adoptive resource. But the culture in foster care right now is anti-reunification. And I will die on that hill because, like, you literally hardly ever see a positive post about reunification on social media. It's always about adoption. I was in foster care this many days and now I'm adopted. Like, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the big one that you see all the time. Um, if someone's kid is going home, it's never celebrated. Everyone's always like, oh, tears. I'm so heartbroken. I'm so sad. Like if kids go to relatives, people talk about how they don't even know grandma, auntie, whatever. Like we don't even, that's not even fair. People will even fight against it. I've heard of foster parents luring up against families and people will support that. Their community will come around them and say, you know, you've had this baby since they were born and they're two years old now. I support you from taking them from grandma or auntie or uncle. Like you should stop that. Like we support you. And that's anti-reunification. I mean, it's toxic. And so one big struggle that I had as a foster parent was I had to fight to overcome that. Because when you have voices all around you in trainings, your social workers from your agency, your friends that you meet that are foster parents who are like, 
oh my God, you're so amazing. The boys are doing so well with you. And my first two boys stayed with me for two years, a little over two years. So people were like, I mean, the youngest called me mama. Like it was a whole thing. So people were like, oh my gosh, like, of course the boys need to stay with you. You're their mom. And I was like, I'm one of their moms, but that doesn't mean that it's okay for me to like stand in the way of their mother's healing and, and being able to raise them. And so, um, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just, I'm lucky. I read a lot and I had some really important people in my life. And then my boy's mom, um, was a huge influence for me and watching her overcome her demons, um, really inspired me. And I was like, okay, I need to support this woman and people need to start supporting their fam- their children's families more radically. And so I think that was just my biggest struggle and probably still is as a foster and adoptive mom is like feeling alone with that because I'm so passionate about first families healing. And if they can't heal, having access to as much of an open adoption as possible. And in the foster care circle, that's just not possible. Uh, that's not popular. And so it gets hard sometimes because a lot of other people that I know in real life, even, or on in the internet just are really angry about that. And they feel like that shouldn't be the case. <laughs> so it, it makes it hard to relate to other people in the, in the field. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard, you know, a lot of the counties and a lot of the government systems saying, you know, reunification is the goal. And I've seen a lot more of the foster care communities start to understand that. And, you know, some veteran foster parents trying to kind of educate uh, rookie foster parents on why reunification is so good, why it's so good to have relationships with bio parents that are helpful to them. But you're right. In general, as a culture, uh, I don't, I rarely see a reunification post from anyone. And I mean, I'm sure there's several reasons for that. I mean, I don't know if people that have had their children removed want to celebrate that they've gotten, I mean, I'm sure internally they celebrate that they've gotten their children back. But, you know, I think that there's a huge level of stigma that comes with having your children removed. Um, so it doesn't allow a huge opportunity for people wanting to claim that celebration. Um, but yeah, it does kind of come more back to the foster parents and to the uh, system itself on kind of celebrating that. Um, but it goes back to your, I mean, even the expectations you had of like, okay, I'm going to get this type of kid. It's the same type of thing. Like we go into these things with our ego and with our own thoughts of why this would be great for us. And, and also I, the heart that it takes to love a child and it's messy. Like it's not clean. Uh, even if you go into it thinking, I'm just going to hold the gap. Like I'm just going to hold space for this child while mom, um, works on her healing. It's, it's hard to be that stoic. In, oh yeah. I mean, and, and I tell people, especially like new parents that I like get to talk to, like, this is your, this is your, well, mostly moms. Cause I mostly have friends that are girls, but I'm like, this is your motherhood test. Like this is the moment, the moment where you need to make a choice between doing something that's going to hurt reunification efforts and doing something that's going to help it. That's your real test of your motherhood because especially, and you asked about transracial parenting, especially if your child is not the same race as you, because for a child, I'm white. So if a child of a different race, especially when I was single back when I was fostering for the first time I was single and you know, my partner's not white, but at the time he wasn't in the picture. So our family was a white mom and two black kids. And so for my boys, um, if they didn't have a successful reunification, they were going to be losing their same race community, um, their Dominican community. They were going to be losing access to their first language. 
Um, I mean, they were going to lose so, so much. And so I tell women like your motherhood test is this is, can you love them completely as your own child? Cause they are your own in your heart while also actually and honestly supporting reunification, not just saying that you do, but literally doing mm -hmm. it in your words and in your actions. And if you say, I am this child's mother and I love them more than anything and I want to do what's actually best for them, it is very important that foster moms really, really, really dig into what that is because, and I, and I mean, having a teenager too has helped me a lot with that because I tell people with little ones, like, you know, I have an older kid now, so I know what it's like to talk to an older adoptee about their experience. And I'm like, you do not, you want to be able to sit across the table from your 17 year old and tell them, honestly, I did everything I could for your first family. There's nothing that I, I, I would have done anything to make it work. And I did do everything I could because if you have to come back to them at that age and tell and lie to them or say, well, you know, I reported your mom for things that I didn't need to be, or I could have done X, Y, Z to help her. And I didn't, or she couldn't find an apartment or she couldn't find a bed for you. And I had the resources to help. And I didn't like, that is not going to be a good conversation. And I don't know that your relationship with your adoptee would, would come back from that. So so I try to have people have that longer mindset, like as a mother, as a parent, we have to really think about the long term of that person that we're parenting's mental health and their whole life's journey, not just this time right now where we love them, we want them with us. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, so what were some of your biggest wins? Oh, my gosh. Like you were just like, oh, this is, this is why I do this. Oh, so many. Um, oh my gosh. So many. So when my older foster son from the first sibling group got his meds well managed and stopped being aggressive and was able to like live life. And like when his mom and I could talk and be like, it's been weeks since he was suspended for hitting anyone or like he's only been suspended for like one or two days, this whole like half of the school year. Um, when we were able to share some of those wins, when she started having visits and was able to be like, he can play with his brother now. Like, I'm not scared to leave them alone anymore with each other. Like when, when she was able to share with me that she was seeing the success. And when I saw the success for him, it, that was a multi-year project. So that was huge. Like when he stabilized, it was like, Oh my God, like it was just so amazing um, to see for him. Um, the biggest wins. I mean, just, you know, them going home, them going home was the worst day of my whole life. But, um, it was also the best thing ever. Like we had a, I was moving at the time. So I had given them my old Christmas tree that we had used every year together. And so it was the, it would have been our third Christmas together, but they were going home. So we used it for two Christmases and now they were using it at their mom's house. And so to see the tree that we decorated together every year, all set up with their little ornaments and like, uh, we'd packed all their things. And then I had packed all their Christmas gifts wrapped and everything. And to like put them under her tree in her house and just like see her teary eyes and like her boys home, like, their little room. I mean, it was like, I was, my heart was broken, but I was so happy to see them with her all together again. I mean, it was like, it was like a 26 month journey to get there. So we were both just like, Oh my gosh, like I can't believe we did it because <laughs> it was so much work and, and uh, a lot of challenges for her to overcome. So that was a really cool day. Um, and then like from the flip side, cause like, I'm not, you know, adoption has a piece in foster care too. And that needs to happen sometimes too. Um, my teenager had a really complex situation that really is more his story to tell, but we ended up in a situation where he knew that adoption was the best option for him. Everybody on his team knew it. There was no safe option at all at home. Um, but we kept getting extensions. And so we got extensions like three times where, and teenagers have to go to court with you. So I would show up with my poor teen who is very anxious to go to places like that. Um, and they would extend and he'd be like, God, I can't do this. Like, I don't, I want to know what's going to happen. Like he had a lot of struggle of not being adopted because he was like, he felt really unsafe. He was like, I don't want to be a foster kid anymore. 
you know, we'd have to have a schedule another meeting with the social worker. He'd be like, I don't want to go to these meetings anymore. This is so bad for my mental health. Like I need this to be over. And so the day that we had court and they said that he was going to move to the adoption track. I mean, it just like, I just didn't, I was like frozen. Like I could, I'll never forget what it felt like to stand in that. And he, I think he wasn't, he wasn't there that day with me because things were so tense. They had me not bring him that last time. And so I was just standing there with his, his guardian ad litem was there and a bunch of other court people. And they, and I had, a, I had even had to write a letter to the judge from him and I, my child and I, because since he was so much older, they were looking at taking parental rights away, but not making him adoptable. They wanted to have like long-term legal mm -hmm. custody of him with the county, yep. which is an option that is supposed to be reserved for teenagers who do not want to be adopted. And so I'm, I'm open to that for those kids. There are some kids at that age that 16, 17, where they're like, I don't feel comfortable being adopted. I just want to age out. Um, that's fine. And that's totally an option for them. But my son really wanted to be adopted and I really wanted to adopt him. And they were trying to allege that he wouldn't have options because of his needs and his age. And so we wrote a letter with pictures of us being like, no, like this is my kid. He has a home here. He'll always have a home here no matter what, but he wants to be out of foster care. Like, please don't take that option away from him. And the judge, for some reason, was very hesitant about giving him the option of adoption. Like, I don't know. They were very, like, pessimistic that, like, that wouldn't be a good option for him. And so we were very nervous that even if the, we knew that the, the rights would be terminated because there was no way forward for reunification with that situation um, safely. Uh, but we were worried that adoption wouldn't be on the table. So when he, like, announced that it, that was what we were going to do, I was just like, like at that moment, it was so weird. Like I stopped hearing everything else. And I just like had a minute where I was just like, this, like in my brain, this is real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just like, whoo. And like getting to go home and tell my dude that we were good to go. I mean, that was like a really in uh, incredible day. Cause I mean, I was just so happy that he was going to be safe and have permanency and not have to have meetings with social workers anymore and not have to be a foster kid. I mean, for him, cause like, that's not what he didn't want to be a foster kid anymore. So those are the two biggest wins. I think the successful reunification and then the opposite of that, honestly. And, 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 uh, that's the thing. It's like, it's different for every story and, um, and it can be a redemption story, either scenario, as long as, you know, it's truly what's best for the child. Right. And that's supposed to be the point is, is, the win is supposed to be that you find the best option for the child. Yeah. I, well, I love that. I love those two sides. Um, so have there been unique challenges to being a transracial family that you've found? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you talk about it? What if I was like, no, it's been totally fine. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. like, you're like, what's transracial? What if I was like, I don't see color. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, that would be horrible. Um, yes, so much. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You'd be like, ew. Um, so yeah, the whole way there's been huge challenges. My first boys, I am so ashamed to admit this, but my youngest at the time, the youngest brother had hair down to his butt. He's they're both Dominican and black. And so he had gorgeous, Oh God, the most beautiful curls. His mom, if she ever listens to this would laugh. Cause I still to this day kind of like miss doing his hair. And so for the first six months that I had him, I would do like one big ponytail. Cause like, you know, if it's a little black girl, you've got all these options for easy little puffs and things you can do till you learn how to braid. But if it's a boy, like, you know, he's not going to go to school with pigtails. And so basically I would put it in one big puff. Um, and that was all I knew how to do. Or I would get people in our communities, we have friends of mine that were black that knew how to braid, um, 
to do it because he was autistic. So he couldn't go to a salon or anything because the ladies there were like, no, we're not dealing with this. Like he won't sit um, for long enough. And so um, for the first six months or so, I had a really poor attitude towards his hair. I pressured the caseworker to try to get mom to let me cut it a lot. And I'm really horrified at myself now. But at the time, like, and, and I would get all my friends to be like on my side and nobody like either was brave enough to stand up for me or to me or like um, knew enough. Like my, my white girlfriends would be like, oh my God, it's so unreasonable. Like he's a boy. Like you should make her let you just buzz it all off. And like, I literally at the time I was like, oh yeah, I want to take this kid to the barber and cut off the hair that his mom's been growing for five years and be done with it. Like that was my view. And I, now I'm just like, how could I even have thought that was okay? Um, and so I just had a lot of learning to do. And the day that I sobered up and was like, okay, I need to stop being an asshole. He was in kindergarten um, for the first time. I have about six months and he cut a huge chunk on the front off and he came home that day and I was freaking out. I was like, what the heck? Like you have like this weird bang situation. Like, what did you do? And he was like, everybody laughs at me. All the other black boys have cornrows or they have a fade. And I don't, he didn't say like that good of language sure. he was five, but he was basically like, all the other black boys have this or that style. And I don't, I have a puff because you don't know how to do it. So I hate my hair and I'm ugly. And I was just like, okay, so I have not prioritized this as a mom. And because of that, this child is suffering. And so I cried all night and thought to myself, like, my ass needs to get it together. Like, I don't know why it took me that long to wake up, but I was like, I can't be doing this. I mean, I, he was suffering because I didn't want to take, I had had all summer to learn. I don't know what was wrong with me. And so anyway, and I, you know, people make excuses. I've seen other white moms do it. Oh, it's too hard. I'm learning. I'm on a journey. Da, da, da. Like, you know, no, it needs to be a huge priority. And so I made it a huge priority. I went to visits. I bought everything his mom had been asking me to buy for months. And I apologized to her. And I was like, listen, I don't want to use your time to do this all the time, but can you do it a couple of times and I'll video it? Or we would get there early and she would do it in the waiting room at the visitation center. And she was like, yes, absolutely. Like I want his hair to look good. And, um, you know, I ate crow. I apologized to her. I went back and talked to my black girlfriends again. And I was like, listen, I didn't really listen to what you said. I didn't understand how important it was. My friend Allison came over. She helped me. She taught me how to do cornrows. I practiced every week. And so I used to have to style his hair every other night because I got to the point where I could do it. Um, pretty good but it wouldn't look good enough after like the first day or two like my my braids weren't tight enough but I got to the point where I could braid that head in like eight cornrows super tight edges great looking awesome they would last a week I was so proud of myself and I and it was awesome to learn that skill I mean I really I don't know why I resisted for so long so um that taught me a ton I was so lucky that his mom was so sweet to me about it. I mean, she should have been like, fuck you, white girl. You're being an asshole. I'm sorry. You probably have to edit that out. But she should have been like, screw you. You're being very white about this and, and very racist. Um, and I was. I really was being, I was being racist. And so her grace that she showed me in that situation really taught me a lot. And now I'm like the biggest person when my friends get um, kids of color and they're white. I'm like, no, it's not okay to like do your best and limp along. Like you have to get this hair together. Like it has to be looking good. Like you wouldn't send your white kid going out with like a stained shirt or like their hair looking all crazy. Like you can't send your black kid going out into the world with their hair, not looking good. Like it's, it's so important. And so that was a learning curve for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just been a lot of, as a person, as a white person who has black and brown children and now a partner who's black, it's been, I've just, I've had to wrestle with a lot of things and I am glad to do it. And, um, you know, my family has, has made me a better person in so many ways, but, um, the, the hair thing is just a small part of it, but it's like, I don't know, just learning, like sitting with what my kids, people and them, them, they themselves go through, um, opening my eyes to how racist our country really is after so long of living in the dark and being like, eh, 
you know, like believing the colonized curriculum that you're taught of like, oh, okay, racism was really bad back then. It's, it's not that bad now. Um, and just the kind of opening. And, I, and I, I teach at a predominantly black school with mostly black staff as well. So my work friends have been a huge influence for me also. But um, unfortunately, yeah, I was really behind the times. And so I, um, I had a lot of learning to do. And I see that in a lot of transracial adoptive parents, unfortunately, are way further behind than they really should be to have a kid in their home that's not white. Um, and so I, I really wish people would understand more, like this is a red alert. Like if you have a child who's not white, like that needs to, your, your own learning and your own anti-racism efforts need to be in the forefront immediately. Like it's, it's not something that's like on the back burner. I've also seen people say like, well, trauma, like I have to focus on this or that first. It's like, it has to be together. Like, like that has to be right up there with the trauma to be addressed. Like you have to work on your anti-racism efforts. Um, and it has to be a, a number one priority. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that kind of, that sums up like a, it's a huge thing to talk about. So it, I think that's a short version, but um, I'm, I'm a work in progress for sure when it comes to that. And I'm very, very committed to making sure that my kids are as least damaged as possible by me being white. And that's the other thing is just wrestling with the fact that I will never be the best option for my black kids or my Chinese son. Like I never will be a, a same race family would be better for them in terms of meeting their cultural needs. And, and that's just the, the fact of the, of the matter. And white, white people hate when I say that and white friends of mine that have black and brown children are always like so horrified when I tell them that, but I'm like, no, like we're not our kids best option and we never will be. And so like, I'm trying to mitigate the damage to them as much as I can by me being white and them having extended family that is white. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a broken road that they're on. And if things had gone the way that they were supposed to for them, they would be in their same race and same culture um, family, but they're not. So I do try to make sure that I'm not hurting my family uh, by that, but it is, it's a constant uh, battle. Yeah. So I have a lot of, you know, there's, I've encountered a lot of white families that have adopted um, black children and they, are understanding how important representation is and maybe in your area it's easier maybe um, you know you have more diversity where you are um, but how do you ensure representation and do you have any advice for for moms that are like I'm trying to make ends and trying to make sure that there's representation but they're like I I don't want to like walk up to people and be like, will you mentor my family? So yeah. it's just this awkward position people feel like they're in um, and they don't obviously want to be disrespectful. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I see. I see that a lot. So one big problem that I see is I see white adoptive parents living in a mostly white area, even when they live in a place that there's choices. So like, obviously uh, should you adopt a black or brown kid if you live in somewhere that's like so white that like, you can't get to a more diverse community within like a reasonable drive. I don't think so. But if you already did, it's kind of too late, like save up, make a long-term moving plan. Um, I'm not sure. Like, cause I hear people saying like, well, we already live in such and such place and we're just, we, we can't just like up and sell our house right now. And I'm like, I get that. But also like, why do you have a black or brown kid and you live in, and also like, where do you live in America where it's like so, so white, but okay. <laughs> um, but so I'm sure those places, I mean, I know those places exist. I just, I can't relate because that's not what it's like here, but here it's more of like a Island type of thing. So there's a lot of white flight here in our community. A lot of white people have chosen to live in like different areas of suburbs and stuff that um, are, are overwhelmingly white. Um, and so a lot of adoptive parents are do the same. And I, my thing is like, 
oh my gosh, like sometimes I wish I had access to the property. Some of these people on, I'm like, you could sell your, your white suburban area house and go and buy a place that's like twice as nice. Um, in a more diverse neighborhood, 40 minutes, 30 minutes away from where you live now. Like, why don't you do that? And so we, we live in a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, you know, I bought this house before my boyfriend and I were together when I had my first two foster sons, you know, I wanted them to, um, be able to keep going to their school where we were renting at, um, and to be the majority in their community. And so you need to live somewhere where your kids are represented. Um, there's no excuse to not. Um, and I know, a lot of my friends don't, or people will live in suburbs that are like overwhelmingly racist and mostly white, but have like, you know, a small community of Hispanic neighbors and black neighbors and stuff like that. And they'll be like, well, it's okay because there's so-and-so. And I'm like, no, that's not what I meant. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not even okay if it's like mostly white and very racist, but there's a couple of people that represent, no, it needs to be like, your kid is the majority and you're the minority is what I think is better. Or, you know, ideally, there's not really an overwhelming majority and it's just a really great mix of different cultures and people. That's also great. But if someone's going to be the majority, it needs to be your kid, not you. Um, and so we, we do that. Um, I teach in a predominantly black school that my son, my high schooler also goes there for school. It's an inner city school. Everybody loves to shit on it. Um, I love it there. I've worked there my whole career and it's an amazing place. Um, they provide a great education um, and I'll stand by that forever. Um, but people will literally say to me like, Oh my God, like he goes to that school. Like, did you know you could do a voucher for private Catholic education or he'd go to this charter or that charter that my kids go to? It's still really diverse. It's like 40% black. And I'm like, no, our school is almost hundred percent black. And we have a giant black history month, um, like festival every year. And like, I, he, and most of his teachers, like half of them are black. And so like, no, it's not the same as your little charter where it's like a token situation. So, um, I, I also think people need to be more open to public schools for their kids and not being all like, Ooh, public school. Like, you know, you need to sit in your racism about that. Like, why don't you think so and such and such is a, is a good school? It's because, is it because it's really not a good school or because it's mostly black kids and brown kids that go there? Cause I think a lot of white people don't realize how racist they're being when they view school choices for their child. Um, and so, yeah, our kids go to um, inner city schools uh, that have a lot of black and brown children and, and few white children that go there. Um, and so those choices, I think, have helped them a lot to feel more represented in their communities. And then um, I, I think my, as far as my like, social circle, that happened more organically because of where I live and where I work. Um, so I am lucky to have some really wonderful close friends from work that are from the Black community. And then uh, I'm making more and more friends in my foster and adoptive parent circles that aren't white. And so that's been really awesome to be able to learn from them and also just they're cool people. So I like making new friends in general. Um, but so for me, that's happened organically. Um, I sadly, like, I know people are not, I hope they're not trying to do it on purpose, but I can't really speak to like why someone would struggle so much to like not have all white friends. Um, but I know that's some people's story, but I guess just like work on yourself, girl. You know what I mean? Like, why are all your friends white? Like, what is it about? Like, that's what is it about the activities and things you do and places you go? and your life story that has you in an all white space. Like that's just really, I mean, that's like a self work thing, but you can't be, but you're right. You can't be just going out to black people and being like, mentor my family. Like that's gross. Um, but you got to do something to figure it out. And also I will say to the white parents that have black and brown children who do have a mostly white space or an all white social circle, don't immediately approach communities of color trying to get help until you work on yourself because you will harm them because you're probably people are going to hate this, but it's probably due to your racism that you don't realize you have. 
that you have an all white circle. And so until you've really done that inner work, you don't have any business trying to be like, let me in the club because of your kids needs, because you do need to meet that kids needs, but you need to make sure that you're not barging into a space where you're going to be hurting people. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's, it's uh, bold and I feel like it's needed. It's, it's, you know, we're at a time where we're saying we're willing to look at ourselves, right? <laughs> we're, we're saying that. So um, I think that that's, those are all really, really good points. And I get it. Like I, I struggle with the, if like, I want to be authentic, I want to be 100% authentic. And like, I will question like, am I being inauthentic if I'm just going somewhere to like, Hey, I want, I want to, to have a more diverse circle. So I'm coming here. Like it feels, it doesn't seem organic, you know? Right. Um, and I do think it's more of a struggle for some than others just because of where they have chosen to live. Mm -hmm. Um, or where they went to school this is a big one too, I think. Absolutely. Like if if they went to college, I know not everybody has that story, but yeah. And which college they went to. Yeah. I, and I think, uh, you know, I, we had, um, only, only black girl, um, is her blog on our podcast. And she was, you know, talking about, she was, uh, international adoption and it's like, you know, you're just plucked from a country and brought to all white, um, oh my pretty God. conservative, pretty conservative, um, pretty racist area. Um, and then always just growing up there and never seeing yourself. Um, and, and that's gotta that's be like, so damaging. I mean, I've heard that from so many uh, grown adoptees that say that that's just so, so damaging for them. And it's a lot, I mean, a lot of people that do international adoptions are affluent white people that can afford them um, mm -hmm. and have that demographic, you know, in their area. So mm -hmm. it's interesting. It's, it's yeah. stuff to think about. Well, and not to say that we're perfect because like right now we're going through for our family, our youngest is Asian American and we, he's Chinese. And so we were placed with him because of his needs for his disability, but we do have a huge learning curve. So it's not like, I mean, we're struggling with that now too. So I, on the flip side, as much as I'm like, Oh, you need to do this and that. Like I really, I mean, I'm not perfect either. My partner and I are wrestling with that right now because, um, you know, we do have pretty diverse circles, but I'll be honest, like I have a couple of close friends that are, that are half Asian, uh, they're Asian American, um, mixed. And so, and that's it. And we don't see them very often. And so like, we don't have a huge connection to, the Chinese American community. Um, and we are struggling. My, my partner and I are both struggling with that right now. Like as a white woman and a black man, how do we make those connections for our son? Um, and, and because we didn't know that he would be with us and he was emergency placement, we didn't have any like learning time before he came home. So, so we are not perfect and we are growing in that area and wrestling with that. Cause I, the last thing I want to do is march into Chinese American spaces and be like, help me. You know what I mean? Like you need to serve me. Like that's not what I want to do at all but I also like I'm struggling with how to make those organic connections and kind of like bridge, uh, you know, get our family more connected with those resources and, and communities. Absolutely. So what is one piece of advice you would give someone who might be thinking about fostering or adopting if you could boil it down to one piece? So fostering, I, it's separate. <laughs> My piece of advice for fostering would be to, um, get to yourself to the point where you want to foster because you want to heal a family. I don't believe in doing foster care for any other reason. I don't. And a lot of people will say like, but, 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 and it's like, no, we do believe in concurrent planning, meaning that we are open to whatever a child in our home needs if they come in as a foster child. And so if they're not 
we've had kids come in as waiting child adoption where they already needed adoption and that's different. But if we take on a active foster care case, we are believing in concurrent planning, meaning that we support reunification 100% and do everything we can to support it. But we are also open to adoption for any kid that we would take on as a foster child because we don't believe in placement disruption for kids. I know a lot of people do, um, but we don't. So I would say like sit with it as a parent, as a family and get to the point where you're doing it because you want to heal families and you're only open to adoption if that's truly what the child needs and that every other door is closed for them. And so if you can get to that point, great, we need you, be a foster parent. If you can't get to that point, you shouldn't be a foster parent um, at all. But then that brings me to adoption. And so one area of adoption, I would say for people who are interested in adoption, I would really like you to research waiting child adoption. And I, I refer to it as waiting child adoption or public adoption. And that's how our agency refers to it too. Um, you'll hear foster to adopt. I wish that term would die forever. I don't believe in saying that. Um, so uh, some people confuse foster to adopt and they think like, oh, that means like you get a kid and you hope that reunification doesn't happen so that you can adopt. And it's like, no, I mean, people do do that, but that's wrong. You should not do that. And so if you want to adopt, I would look into waiting child adoption. And what that is, is that's children who um, have already had their whole foster care case play out and they cannot go home anymore. Um, and so they are waiting for adoption because their current foster parents will not adopt them. Um, and so almost every child in that scenario is going to be over the age of two. Um, they're going to have disabilities, most likely, um, of some sort, either mental health or other stuff going on. Or they're going to be part of a larger sibling group, which makes them harder to place. Or they're going to be older, um, like a preteen or teenager. And so that's a lot of different dynamics. And so I would say if you're my biggest advice for hopeful adoptive parents is please, please look into and consider waiting child adoption. I know people get really caught up in the idea of the infant stage and that that's really important to some families. And like, I, you know, there's routes that you can maybe get there with that um, at some point in your parenting journey. And so look into that too. But waiting child adoption is amazing. And there's nothing wrong with being over the age of two. There's nothing wrong with having a disability. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of siblings. There's nothing wrong with being a preteen. Those kids are incredible. They still deserve families. And so I wish more hopeful adoptive parents would consider that option because waiting child adoption is free. Um, it provides free healthcare for your child and it erases the, a lot of the barriers that are there for other adoption routes are not there for waiting child adoption. So I really wish more people would consider it because those are the kids when you say like, Oh, I want to help a child. I want to save a child. Like we don't want to go into this to be saviors, but if you're looking for a kid who really needs you, it's the waiting children in foster care. They, those are the ones that actually need to be adopted. Not the little babies. They have oh, thousands of families, millions, not the babies in Ethiopia even. They have millions of families, not the Chinese babies that are sitting on waiting lists for international adoption there. Like, no, none of those ones are, are, are low on options or out of options. It's the kids in our own backyards who, for whatever reason, don't fit the box that people want them to fit into that are waiting in foster care. And so for adoptive folks, I would look into that option because um, it's really great. And our two youngest, that's how they came to us and I wouldn't trade them for anything. That's awesome. I love it. I love that advice. All right. So where can we follow you? I know you have a blog and you have Instagram. So can you let us know your blog so people can follow you? Yes. I stole the URL fosteradoptivemom.com. My, my partner says it's boring and wanted me to pick something really snazzy for the website, but I liked it because it's very specific and it's very literal. <laughs> so I was like, how has no one picked this yet? Like, that's sweet. It's great um, for so, SEO. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. And I know nothing about that. I know barely what that term means, but a little mm -hmm. bit I do. So yeah, I have a blog, fosteradoptivemom.com um, through Wix that I really like doing. It's my passion project. So I don't make any money off of it. Um, so it's kind of 
if you want to read it, it's, you, you know, it's authentic as hell because I'm just writing what I feel like writing. Um, and then I have an Instagram, Low Flynn Fam, so L-O-F-L-Y-N-N-F-A-M. Um, and I like to post on there too, so. Yeah, and that is how I found her, and I will be sharing all of that, not only in the show notes, but I will be sharing out this episode and promoting it on Stable Moments, uh, you know, Instagram and Facebook and all of that, so I will cool. uh, tag where I can, and so that you guys can follow her journey. Um, yeah, this has been so, so incredibly, like, I just love how I want to say real, but like that word is so over. So real, I know. Yeah, this has been so real. Um, but it's so been, real. it's been uh, real. I feel like you're unapologetically you and you're well informed through a lot of things. I also think it's incredible when we can hear people say when they weren't correct and when they needed to learn a lot more and you have been critical of yourself. And I think that that's most people that start out on, on journeys like this. Um, they need to go back and go, gosh, you know, what I was I like doing? <laughs> exactly. But it's like, it's all part of the, it is part of the journey and it's okay. Nobody's supposed to like start out as a well-informed uh, expert on anything, right? Yes. Open to learning. That's the number one thing for any foster adoptive parent is open to learning. And I, same to you. You're very real. I was super excited to find your podcast because I had binged I, pretty much everything I could find on foster care and adoption. So when I find a new one, I'm always like, cause Apple has the worst algorithms for their podcasts. Like you can't find one on a topic you like. Um, but like I find a lot on Instagram and stuff. So I was really excited and I'm still like working my way through some of your episodes. Cause it's like nice to, and it's nice to find one. Like yours is awesome to me cause it is so real. And like, no, no shade, my faves. You guys are getting a little fake out here. Um, but there's a lot of podcasts that I've been listening to for like several years on foster care and adoption and they're getting a little fake. Like some of them are just getting so curated and so like professionalized and it ends up being like boring because you're like, I feel like this is the same or like the same famous people in the field will be interviewed on like the same six podcasts. Um, like for National Adoption Month, I've listened to like a couple of people's interviews like on like three or four different podcast platforms. And I'm like, can I listen to a news story? <laughs> like I'm like, I get it. So-and-so's, everybody likes them. They have a really cute Instagram. I like them too, but I don't want to listen to them on every podcast. So I'm, I'm excited to find like podcasts that are a little more different and like, I don't know, have different guests and I, yours is really cool. Well, thank you for that. I, I love having all my guests be experts on their own lives and their own experience and bring it as it is because everybody's perspective matters. And I think that's kind of the problem is we all jump to us telling people and us thinking we know best. Um, but until we can stop and understand everybody's experience and perspective, we really don't grow, right? We don't expand mm -hmm. any farther than what we know. And I love it because I'm sitting in Florida, like, I don't know what Ohio looks like. I don't know what people are dealing with in Arizona and from different families and different backgrounds and medically fragile versus, you know, trans. There's so many layers to this that we kind of mm -hmm. need to ask a lot more questions you know yeah yeah i i think that this was just so good and thank you so much for, it was such a great time thank you so much bye 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 Guys, I'm so glad that we met Lauren. Make sure that you go ahead and follow her. I'm linking to everything in the show notes. Uh, she is just a rock star. I love that she makes her children the heroes of the story. 
And, you know, I really want to challenge you guys to uh, consider where we are perpetuating this toxic anti-reunification culture. So how much are we, you know, celebrating adoption, not celebrating reunification? How much are we not supporting birth moms? How much are we, you know, creating this narrative that children would be better off in another scenario than their birth families and their homes of origin. And I think Lauren made some great, great points about this. We actually next week have a guest coming on who is the creator of the Sit Knee to Knee website, which is a support website and resources and curriculum for birth moms, uh, for both birth moms to get the, the post placement care, post-adoption care that they so need when they, you know, give their baby up for adoption and then they go home without a child. And she really talks a lot about this uh, as well, this kind of culture of celebrating adoption so much and celebrating it in a way like writing the narrative of this woman basically got pregnant to give another family a child. And we're just missing the birth mom side of things. So I'm so excited because she is real. She's candid. She's awesome. She is a badass. She's a big, tough girl, which you'll learn about more uh, next week. I can't wait to have her on. Uh, a little pre-read before then. Go ahead and check out sitneetoknee.com and you can check out what Ashley is all about. All right, guys. See you next week.